Hello, podcast listeners. Today's episode is with Sonny McMinn, founder and executive director of Agape House. If you struggle with addiction or you know someone who does, this episode is for you. I took a lot away from this conversation as Sonny not only opened up about her own addiction, but she also provided us with hope and practical tips for those who might currently either be battling addiction themselves or helping those who are. And so, as always, I really appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoy this episode with Sonny McMinn. Sonny McMinn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here today. Glad to be with you. So we go way back. I was thinking about this as I was driving over here to meet with you. The first time that I remember connecting with you was back in 2011. We had I had just met a girl uh, who was in addiction, um, had just lost her daughter due to her addiction. Daughter had been taken away. And then she went to jail and I began to visit her in jail some and she wanted to get out of jail and into rehab. Um, I remember. And oh yeah, you remember and I reached out and we, uh, I think our church at the time, we were small. There was just a handful of us and we helped bail her out, got her some clothes, went to the court, you know, uh, date and, and, you know, pleaded her case, got her into agape and I'm like, yes, this is going to be a success story. And then you called me, I think it was literally like two or three, four days later. It wasn't very long at all. And you were like, hey, I hate to tell you this, but that girl, this lady, had fled. And I remember being so discouraged by that because I felt confident that God wanted me to minister to this woman and wanted our church to minister to her. But what's really cool, and you know this part of the story, those who are listening don't, is though we were never... You know, at least as far as I know, able to make a, a lasting impact in this lady's life, there was another woman who was at the Agape House by the name of Brooke who heard what our church had done for this woman. I ended up getting connected with Brooke. Brooke ended up joining the church, and Brooke is now my assistant and works full time for us. And so, God uh, works in mysterious he ways. He works in very mysterious ways. But that was my very first encounter with you. I got a chance to go lead a couple Bible studies there at the Agape House at a finance class with the guy. Um, and so I've known about you for quite a while. And one thing I'm super impressed by is your perseverance. You were in a very difficult uh, ministry, a very rewarding ministry, but also a very taxing ministry. You and I were talking about this on the uh, when we were getting our picture made a while ago of it's easy for me to like, I, I joked about like, you know, you were talking about how I, kind of had this soft heart of like, oh, I'm going to help, you know, every person now. I'm like, yeah, my heart's a lot harder now. I don't, I don't, I don't feel so much sympathy towards every single person like I used to have compassion. And that was somewhat of a joke, but I'm curious for you. It's one of the questions I have is how do you keep from letting your heart get hard? I want to get into that, but before we do, let's back up. Tell me your story. Cause I've never even heard this. How did you get into this ministry, this field that you're in right now of working with recovering addicts? I try to give you the cliff notes. <laughs> I say that so, so I won't go back into all these little backstories and side stories. And uh, you're fine the, if you want to chase rabbits, it. you can. <laughs> uh, I'm bad to do that, so I'm going to try not to. Uh, how did I get into the actual recovery, working with other mm-hmm. people in recovery? Um, well, I had a lot of field research on the other side. Let's mm-hmm. just put it like that. You know, I spent. Uh, 
18 years strung out and addicted um, to the point that uh, probably everybody had given up on me, and I'd certainly given up on myself, um, or I thought everybody had given up on me. They were trying to practice some tough love. Uh, in and out of jails, uh, lost everything that ever mattered to me. You know, wow. I lost custody of my children. Thank God my parents had them and kept them safe until I got my head back on straight. But my parents had my children for five years. Wow. You know? how, how old were you whenever you fell into your addiction? In, I started drinking in high school. I had always felt, and as I worked through the 12 steps, I realized I'd always had these strongholds. I'd always felt inferior to other people. I felt like everybody in the world was a better person than I was. And I had always felt um, like I didn't fit in. You know, everybody was better than me. And I I carried these from my childhood through some situations and things that had, had left those strongholds in me up into adulthood. But in high school, I started dating a guy that was an alcoholic at 17 and I, I started drinking with him and it, it fixed those feelings. Mm. I didn't feel inferior or like, do you think it was the alcohol or him? It was the alcohol. The alcohol. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was the first of many husbands. So, I mean, yeah, the alcohol, uh, it's, I I feel like, can I just say what I think? Of course you can. That's okay. exactly what I want you to do. I, I feel like it's a, a trick of the devil, you know, because if we knew how something ended when we started, but at first it works, yeah, for you sure. know, it works, and then you're sucked in, and then you're addicted. And I had, you know, generations of addiction in my family. Uh, like I've told my grandchildren since then, you know, this is in your family. You don't ever have to take a drink, you know, because why take that chance? Nobody had ever said that to me. You know, I grew up saying I'm not going to be like this person or I'm not going to be like that person, and then I was worse than all of them. Do you think when you said that um, that it helped, it fixed, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a label to it, I have to call it shame, what you're experiencing, right? There's a difference between shame and guilt, like guilt is I've done something bad, shame is I am bad, or guilt is I didn't yeah. do enough, shame is like I'm not enough. So this shame, which is crippling, I think, in the lives of people, like you said the alcohol helped that. Did it only help whenever you were uh, drunk. drunk? Yes. And then whenever that would go away, what was that? Was it the then shame came back all over again? That much more plus what you feel for the way, the things you did while you were drinking. And so you drink so more. So there's the cycle. So I was an alcoholic for years, but I was a, a pretty much a functioning alcoholic. And uh, I'm going to really age myself now. In 1988... I started nursing. I was in nursing school. Well, I graduated in 1988. From where? Uh, Black River. Okay. Uh, oh, what high school? Uh, I graduated from Oak Grove High School. Okay, Oak Grove, all right. That was a long time before yeah, that. Yeah, uh, Well, not a long time. I graduated in 1982, so now I've told you if you do the math. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get all the all the stuff out of you. I'm 59 years old now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in 1998, I was in nursing school, and I was still drinking and going to school the next day. And I was a functioning alcoholic, but um, I pretty much had to have alcohol to function. I can remember getting up and making a blender of mar- margaritas for breakfast. And, and I, tell for people that don't know, what does that mean, that I had to drink alcohol to function? Because that's, that's, that's not language that, unless you've been in addiction yourself, you, you, that doesn't make any sense to you. What do you mean by that? It, to feel normal. 
it, without it, I didn't, I didn't feel like I could function. Mm-hmm. So I would do that and then be like, ah, oh, does that make sense? It takes the edge I, off and just helps you become more just like yeah. less anxious. And, and, and for a while, that's the solution until the solution becomes the problem. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, and elaborate on it, though, for yeah, those who, again, uh, just don't assume anybody understands that. Well, and then, well, when I started drinking in high school, you know, I still graduated. I made really good grades and did really well and went to college on an academic scholarship, and I, I partied that scholarship away because mm-hmm. I had learned about drinking by that time pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in, and then I got married to the guy I started drinking with and, and had a couple of kids, and then he was like, your drinking's out of control. And I'm like, you're the alcoholic. That's crazy for you to mm-hmm. tell me that my drinking's out of control. And he was an alcoholic. Yeah, he still is, yeah. you know, but he functions pretty well. Um, but you were drinking more than even what he thought he was drinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd say, just, I, I just drink beer. Well, I didn't like beer. I just, you know, yeah. I drank other stuff, which way back then there weren't as many other things as there is now. I don't know how addicts today can stay alive at all. (laughs) But uh, I started nursing school and was still drinking and going and still going to school and um, was into, I don't know how many different relationships by this time, but I, I remember the night I did my first drug. I'd never done drugs. I'd always drank since I was 17, but I'd never done drugs. And I was with a, a nursing student that was in the class with me, and we ran into um, some people that worked. At that time, Corning had a hospital that worked at the Corning Hospital, and they were doing drugs. And um, I remember one of them telling me, well, if you're going to do this, the safest way to do it, and, and he gave me a shot of methamphetamine. Uh, Which at that time, did you even really know what that was? I had heard about it, you know, uh, not really, no. I mean... There uh, certainly wasn't all the stuff out on it that there is now. There wasn't at all in 1988. I was dating a guy that used it on occasion, and I called him from Corning that night, and I said, well, I guess I found out what you like about it, you know, and he's like, you need to come home. <laughs> yeah, which you, basically, uh, for those that don't know, I mean, it's just going to give you a ton of energy, right? It, uh, it kind of... Uh, of course, I don't know about this stuff they do now. I've been sober for 23 years. Yeah. But back then, it kind of just was a euphoric feeling okay, and a ton of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was just like how the alcohol worked for me for a while. This worked for me a while because I finished nursing school. And, um, I mean, the night before I took my state boards, I was in Little Rock in a motel uh, injecting cocaine. Wow. Uh, so tell me, about that, that, tell me about that digression. And, so you go from... The shot of meth. And, and walk me through that first night. Like, are you terrified? Or no. are you at a place where you're just like, whatever? No, I mean, if uh, I'm not going to say the name of the person that gave me my first shot, but yeah. I trusted him. I mean, okay. he was a medical professional. And he said, this is the safest way to do it. And he cleaned my arm with alcohol and gave me a shot of methamphetamine. And I was... You were hooked from there. I loved it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. So you go from, at that point... Are you doing like? Are you taking a couple like? Are you getting a couple shots once a week, twice? What are you? Where's it? How's that? You know, I don't really remember that. The first, I went home. I was drunk when I did that that night, or I probably wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. And I went home, and and he was my future second ex husband at that time. <laughs> we weren't married yet, uh, but uh, he's like, well, if you're going to do this, you're only going to do it with me, you know. And so I I did it with him on the weekends and then it just progressed well I'm you know I have a job now as a nurse at the hospital in Walnut Ridge and 
So I wouldn't do it when I was working, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but if I was off, we were high. And then probably uh, still felt somewhat in control of it at that point. I did. I did. I thought I was functioning, you yeah. know, uh, and I was functioning somewhat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, I don't know if it's my addictive personality or just the nature of addiction or I still, you know, I blame the devil for a lot. I take responsibility for a lot, but I blame mm-hmm. him too because it worked for a while. And then this guy is saying to me, we're married, and he's saying, you're strung out. Like my first husband said, you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, you're the alcoholic. And I'm like, he's like, you're strung out, and I'm not going to be around this. And I was like, you're the one that made me this way, is mm-hmm. what I was telling him, but it wasn't true. Were you still holding on your job out. then? I was. Um I was probably at a different job. I think I was at St. Bernard's by that time or okay. or maybe Paragold Hospital. And When uh, he says you're strung out, it just means like you're on it all the time at that point? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and then he, you know, he was gone, and I had <laughs> twins in daycare, and then I had kids in school, and then, you know, I had to be at work at a certain time, and I would drop them at daycare. The others would catch the bus and go to school, and I would work my shift and come home and pick them up from daycare and get the kids had homework and you got baths and if you're going to do any straightening of your house or anything. And it's, again, it seemed like a solution. It seemed, yeah, it like seemed it justifiable, worked. right? Right. It worked. You know, I could do a little bit and this get all helps these me be a better done. mom and get, be a better worker. And yeah, that's the delusion, yeah. you know, and, but it kind of was for just a minute. And then, sure. and then there's the trap, you know, then I couldn't do any of those other things cause I was too busy being high. And I wasn't, all the things I started doing it to keep, I lost. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I lost my kids. I lost my job. I lost my nursing license. And, and I say I didn't lose it. I threw it away. The State Board of Nursing tried to work with me, but I preferred to be high. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was, I just couldn't see the trap that I was in for what it was. Of course, people around me could see it. Um People are starting to talk to you about it at this point. So, oh, okay, yeah, Sunday, you think are. there's a problem. You know, I had people that uh, I had worked at the hospital, and I worked at the hospital in OB for a period of time, and I would help them when they had their babies and or their wives had their babies. And I had uh, there was a police officer that came to me, and he said, you know, I know things are changing for you. And he said, I'm hearing your name everywhere. And he said, what happened to the lady that helped us with our babies, you know, and we uh, asked for you the next time we came in. And uh, and I said, and I told him, I said, she's gone. This is me. You know, I'm wow. a junkie, and this is and this is the way so I'll be. So tell me about I that. Die. Like, like it, rather than it, rather than you just, like, in that moment, just breaking and being like, yeah, what's happened to me? Like, you were, is it literally a, just a, is it a whole new shift in identity to where you just begin to embrace, like, this is who I am and I'm never going to be able to change it. And if you don't like it, like, I mean, I, t- tell I me, mean, like, was, how does that shift? I was shift? miserable most of the time by this time. Uh-huh. But I was, I don't know how to say, proud of, not proud of who I was, but too proud to say, boy, I'm really screwing up, you know? Um, but, yeah, I was just like, uh, Ellen Johnson, she was our circuit court clerk at that time. And, um uh, she, her daughter was one of my best friends, and she's clean, too. She's been clean for 20 years now, but we mm. put poor Ellen through it, you know, mm. and she came to us one day, and she said, she still remembers me saying to her, I said, she said, how long are you going to do this? And I told her, I'll do this till I die. This is it. I'm a junkie, and this is how we act. Wow. And the police would come to my door for different reasons, you know, because once you start getting in trouble, you stay in trouble, and 
I had track marks all up and down my arms by this point because I, the first time I did methamphetamine, I did it with a needle, and that's the only way I ever did any drugs after that. I never tried it. I mean, I might have tried it maybe some other way, but I never cared for any other way. I was hooked. But I had marks all up and down my arms, and I can remember a, a policeman and I had worked with his mother, and I remember him saying, I remember you working at the hospital, and you did this, and you did that. And I said, well, that's not me anymore. And he said, are those track marks on your arm? And I was just a smart aleck. You know? And I said, well, is there a law in Arkansas against internal possession? And he said, no. And I said, then they're track marks. Mm. And I was just real ugly person to be around. I was miserable, and if people came around me, they were pretty much going to be miserable too. And when you were, you say you were miserable, like when you had these moments of being sober, and maybe I know which was probably a very small window at that point, but when you were sober, and let's say you're home, you're by yourself, like. Were there thoughts of despair? Were there ever these even or moments where you're just like, what have I done to myself? Like, I've got to get out of this. Yeah. Like, what kind of dialogue were you having? Like, I'm curious. I put us in the mind of an addict, like, in between those times where they're just. I tried not to have too many of those times. I tried to just say, uh, but I can remember, and I didn't ever want to be alone. And I think that's probably why, because I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. But I can remember thinking, um, well, I became suicidal a couple of times. And, uh, but then I felt like I was even too chicken to kill myself, you know, and the voices in my head would be like, you can't even, you can't even do that. It's right. even more shame. You know, yeah. and it was just, uh, yeah, I constantly kind of beat down and it, and it would be like, everybody would be better off without you. You know, mm. you're, cause I called my mom from jail one time, you know, and I'm like, I'm in jail. And she said, oh, we know. She said, we saw you on the news. She said, well, let me rephrase that. Your children saw you on the news, Jeez. you know, and I'm like, every, and the voice is like, everybody would be better off without you. And at that point, it's hard to prove otherwise, right? Oh, yeah. Because you right. are sucking so much and hurting and. And that's what I tell people now. I say, I've been where you are when I thought everybody would be better off without me. And since then, I've been able to help some people with God's help. You know, he helped me first and yeah. then enabled me to help other people. And I, and I tell them what you're in is just a season and you can step out of that. And get the help you need and look back at that like I do now, like just a really bad memory. And sometimes I look back and think, who was that girl? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to be the size she was, you know, <laughs> but that's the only part about her that I miss. Mm. <laughs> she, just really mean and just really sarcastic. But it was well, you all hated a, yourself, right? I did. Yeah. And it was all like a, a, a front to keep people away. You know, I, I'd have a smart remark to somebody or. I didn't want anybody too close because in those times when I would be all alone, just I would I would have all that guilt and all that shame for I wasn't taking care of my kids. I, I at this point I wasn't even working. I'd lost my license and it just um, was too hard to be an addict and work. You know that was my and when job. When you say you didn't want people to get close, is it that you didn't want them to get close because you didn't want to feel their judgment, or you didn't want them to get close because? you weren't ready to get help and you didn't want them to tell you to change or like, or was it afraid that like if they got close, they would reject you and be like, you're a terrible person, all of the above. Like what is it about an addict that oftentimes will try to push away those who are closest to them? Yeah. And then you just want to surround yourself with the other addicts or nobody at all, you know, uh, because there's no judgment really coming from another addict. Okay. And, 
I say that sometimes they are because they're like, well, at least I don't do this and at least I don't do that. And before long, I looked around and I was doing all the things that said, I, at least I don't do this for drugs or at least I don't, you know, then I'm that person doing all of those things. So people are starting to come to you. They realize that you got an issue. Some I'm guessing are obviously saying like, hey, how can we help? What is it that, what have you, have you, I know you've been working, how long have you been in this for this work? And we'll get into Agape House eventually. How long have you been working with regard? I got clean in March of 2000. Okay. Uh, we started in about 22, I started doing jail ministry. I was only clean about six, seven months. And some ladies from my church are like, you're going in the jail with us. I actually got in the jail with them. And the jailer remembered me, you know, and he called the lady that was leading the group out and, and she went out and she came back in. And uh, when we left, I said, well, what do you say? And he said, well, do you realize who you brought in here with you? Wow. <laughs> and, uh, but I started doing jail ministry. They let me keep coming. And uh, so you said you've been doing that kind of work since 2000. That was, a, yeah, about six months clean. I started going to the jail with them. Okay. And so you've been on the other side for probably at least 23 years. My question is before we get kind of into the rest of your story, is what is it? Because this is something that, and maybe it's just a mystery. Maybe nobody knows this. What is it from your experience and your expertise, from your perspective, that causes some people who are in addiction to just, snap out like after kind of their first fall their first arrest their first whatever and then some people it's like and we would probably know some of them that we could share their names that we we have in common that just keep on making the same mistakes and continue to go back over and over and over and over and over to the exact same things that have just destroyed so much in their life like is there something particular is there a shift that you see in people, because I know, like, you would obviously, you're a faith-based rehab, and I know you would say, like, Jesus, you were just talking about this with me before, like, you really believe Jesus still after all these years is the answer, but, like, there are some people that that do make a, a shift or a decision to stop before even some sort of an encounter with Christ, at least from what I've seen. Like, they, I'm not saying what happens after, but they, they come to some sort of realization of, like, I've got to get out of this, and I need to go get help. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you know what... Sometimes I think I do, and then something happens, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't the answer at all. But it, I wish I did know, uh, because then maybe we could tell people and they could do it that first time, you know. But it's it has to be uh, a heart change, and I know if you keep getting back up, no matter how many times you fall, eventually you get up and you stay up. I have seen that. I've seen people say, I, you know, I went through seven programs. I got locked up seven times and was facing a lot of years in prison when I did finally get clean because I advanced to cooking methamphetamine, which was absolutely insane. But, um, and I started getting busted for that. You know, I wasn't much of a drug seller. I was a consumer, but I, I wanted a lot. So I started making it. You started making it your own. But, uh, the legal problems really didn't make me want to quit. I had physical health problems by that time, but I was sitting in jail when I got saved. Um, facing a lot of years, and uh, Gideon brought me a Bible, and I started reading it, and then wow. said I got saved all by myself. I mean, Jesus was there, but I was in an isolation cell when it happened. You said you were facing a lot of years. Is that for cooking? Second offense manufacturer, yes. Okay, so you were manufacturing. And I was on a suspended like, sentence when I did that, so they, So I how many years were you facing? Uh, 40. Back then, there was a really big Jeez. sentences for that. And now they don't even do that kind of drug anymore. From what I can understand, it's even more toxic than what we were doing back there. Uh, it's it, 
I was pretty crazy, but it seems like it's making people crazier, you know. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, it's almost like uh, anybody that's been on it very long, they seem to be hallucinating. We, The people we get in our program are a lot sicker coming in. They're having seizures. They're, um, they just seem a lot sicker trying to come off of it. Um, I mean, back in my day, you might have a few mini seizures if you went three days without it. So I tried not to go three days, but, mm-hmm. um, and then you'd eat, eat for a week or sleep for a week and eat for a week and you were better. And it's, it's more lingering effects, but it's made different and it's like more like a fungus or a poison now, but they'll think they're either the devil or a biblical character reincarnated. There's a lot of that mixed in with it. You're it's, seeing that. A Personally? lot, yes, a lot. It's uh, like somebody comes in, like you. So, so tell us that process. So, you bring somebody in to the Agape House. How? To, tell us how that even happens. First off, for those that don't know how someone gets in, and then tell me like what you're talking about with what you're seeing with people hallucinating. There's a lot of different ways people get into the Agape House program. Um, DHS recommends some. You know, if if uh, Maybe you have a baby and you've got drugs in your system and the baby has drugs in its system. They'll recommend you go through a, a program to get your child back. And we work well with DHS. Um, sometimes uh, the courts say somebody's sitting in jail and they're like, I really need help. You know, and that's a good place to realize you need help is jail. Mm. Uh, people say uh, jailhouse religion doesn't help, but I'm a believer in jailhouse religion because that's for where I got saved, yeah. right? Uh so sometimes they're in jail and they'll reach out to the chaplain or, or their lawyer and say, I'd like to go to this program. And a lot of the jails work with us and other programs and let people come there and sit there during the time that they would be sitting waiting to go to court. And so that works. They're still considered a jail inmate, but they're in our program. Okay. And so that way sometimes, sometimes they finish another program, maybe somewhere else, but they need a place where they can work and get back on their feet. And so they'll come to us because they're not quite ready to be out on their own. And then sometimes I like to say, people say, well, nobody, I'm I'm here on my own. Nobody made me come. And I say, everybody's got some kind of influence. You're family ordered. You know, you're not court ordered, but you're family. The family will say, hey, this isn't working and you need to get some help. Uh, so we get people from a lot of different avenues. And, you and get, you, they have to take an assessment? Uh, yeah, we ask a lot of questions before they come in, but. We, at the Agape House, we take the people that can't get in anywhere else because I was one of those people. You know, by the time I finally was ready to get clean, there wasn't any place that would take me because I didn't have insurance and I didn't know of any Christian recovery programs. And, uh, you know, my dad hauled me all over the country trying to, if he heard of a program or a evangelist or whatever trying to help me get clean and he always believed I would eventually be clean and he was right you know mm-hmm. um but these kids like these people these kids these ladies they that are kids are, I know some of they're them they're younger and younger and they're sicker and sicker when they come in and and what do you mean like so you're saying they're hallucinating what does that look like so you bring how many how many ladies in your house we have I know uh, you got a men's house too. we have women and men now we have yeah. um about 28 men right now, and they're in a house in Corning. Yes. But we're in the process of buying a bigger building uh, down the road in life to oh, move good. our men to. And then our big plan is to build. Uh, we bought 10 acres 
east, uh, right behind the fire station on Lake Street, and paid it off in six months with Excellent. the help of our community and a lot of good support. And we're wanting to build what we need there, you know, instead of for trying to turn all the these and men and women oh, and cool. office space and then eventually maybe transitional yeah. housing and that's excellent. So you bring in someone comes in and when they come off of meth or their drug, like you're or, seeing them hallucinate, and some of them are like, "I think yeah. I'm the devil." Yeah, or am I the devil? Or uh, they'll talk to the just be, and you'll just see them and they're standing there talking to the wall, having a conversation. Not everybody, sure. You know, thank God. Um, and sometimes, so how do you can, handle that? sometimes we can get them in somewhere that will also help with the mental and then they yes. get them stabilized and they come back to us if they have insurance. There is no help out there right now for the mentally ill. There's just not. And I met with some people Monday that offered some help, but it's all um, pretty much based on if you've got insurance. And you mean like for the mentally ill, like those who are in recovery? Or not, or not just mentally ill, period. You know, we have a, a, a lady from... Paragold that shows up at our place pretty often when she's not in jail, and she's just mentally ill. I think she's also a drug addict, but uh, she's out of her mind, you know. And there's we've t- tried to take her places, and nobody will keep her. And you don't, I don't know how to help them. So you know, what? Really a, what is we there just, a solution to that? Like, are there other cities or other counties or other places where you're you've heard of people that are able to help the mentally ill? No, but if anybody hears, they can let me know. I mean, we're still looking, especially when they're mentally ill because of the drugs. Sometimes you get the drugs out of their system, and eventually they can come back around. But I feel like this, this the drugs they're doing now is, the main things we're seeing is alcohol, opioids, and methamphetamine still. But it's a different kind of methamphetamine. And the people that come in on this ice methamphetamine are... Uh, are the crazy ones? I know, heard I'm of not. That. No judgment there, because I was pretty crazy myself. And then yeah. the ones coming in off the opioids are when going you say through the ice methamphetamine. I don't know. Yeah, heard ice. It's not the traditional meth like we like I made back in the day with the drain opener and all those safe chemicals that yeah, we did yeah, for sure. Because the you know they got wise to that and they dried up the anhydrous sources and the ephedrine sources and all that stuff. And so people quit making it, and it, this is ice is coming primarily from Mexico. Very few people make what they call now old school meth. It's the ice that's coming in from Mexico, and how it's does a that fungus. get here? It comes across the border. I mean, I, I'm I mean into here, like, but you, you, I mean, how does it get into Paragold? Well, um, I know a lot of it comes to Baseball and then comes to Paragold. Okay. Don't make me start talking about cartels and stuff because I don't want to do that today. <laughs> oh, well, that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm wanting to know. I mean, uh, I, that's what I'm curious about. Like how it's like, a business. I, okay. It's a very lucrative business, I guess, for the people that aren't addicted. Never was a business for me because I was too much of a consumer. Okay, so the people but, that are actually selling this stuff, they're not using it. Well, I think after, uh, I think most addicts also sell it. Okay. To furnish their own habit, but no, there's people bringing it in that are bringing it in for the money. Do you feel like in 23 years you've been doing this? Is it have is there is it more prevalent? Like is it abound more, or are we doing a better job of kind of shutting down some of that? I think like the it, methamphetamine is getting better, but the opioid epidemic is unreal. When you've got, and we've tried to crack down on that too, haven't we? They're trying, but it's just, again, and, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm 
anti-immigration or whatever, but there's sure. so much fentanyl coming across the border. It could kill everybody in the United States. It's and That's the really dangerous stuff right it now. Is. It is, and there's even another one that's more potent than that, and I can't think of the name of it, but it's um, even the Narcan, you know, doesn't really work on it unless you can just continually give it to somebody. Um and it's are, scary. The ones that are coming in on the opioids are the ones that are detoxing and going into the seizures and just really physically having such a hard time. And the ones that are coming off the ice and the or the meth are um, are crazy. You know, it takes a long time for their brain. Wow. But I can see people's brains come back. You know, they'll be talking absolutely insane, talking to the wall and thinking God or the devil's talking to them all the time. And in three months, you would never know that was that same person. Wow. You know, even like in a month, you see that light come back on and they're connecting with the real world again. Um, that's what gives you hope to keep doing it so you don't sure. get discouraged with the ones that leave in three or four days. Did the girl, the, the ladies, the men that you have, um, you've obviously, I mean, good, what, thousands of people probably come through in your years. Do they all have similar stories as far as, um, you know, I once uh, read a book on addiction and it was written by actually a lawyer in Fayetteville. His name is Seth Haynes and he had an addiction, but he said, uh, the question is never why the addiction, but why the pain. And so his theory is, and this guy's again, a recovering alcoholic is that there's always, and it's your story too. There was a pain first. I call them strongholds now. Yes. Okay. And that's why I'm a believer in the 12 steps. And, and some, you know, church people will say, well, there's one step to Jesus. There is one step to Jesus, you know. But there are steps to regaining your life. And I'm a firm believer in the 12 steps. I think everybody in the world could benefit from working. I agree 100%. Um, and, you know, when you get to that fourth and fifth step, you identify things. Not, you're not looking back at this stuff to um, – to blame people or anything like that. You just take a good look at it and identify, hey, when this happened, it left in me this stronghold. Yes. You know, I had abandonment issues and I had the rejection issues. And in my adult life, I would move people in with me that I didn't even like just not to be alone, you mm. know. And once you identify those and you can take them to God and, and the fifth step, you take it to another human being, to God and yourself. And it's like it it helps that healing process come so I think, yeah, everybody's got something. You know, everybody's not been sexually abused or everybody's not been physically abused, but everybody has something that started some process. Absolutely. Uh, we get, you know, we get people that come from great homes, grew up in Christian homes, and then we get people that, you know, yeah, were never loved until we try to show them that revelation love of Jesus. Yes. And well, those are the ones that when they get a hold of that and realize that they're worth something and that Jesus loves them, they just flourish and they do amazing. Yeah. If they could ever get a hold of that knowledge because they've grown up their whole life thinking they're worthless. Mm -hmm. But then you get people, everybody that's an addict has not been made to feel that way their whole life, you know. So it's a broad spectrum. Um, I don't know if it's genetic. I think it can be genetic because, you know, it certainly is in my life and a lot of other people that I've seen. But it's or predisposition, or I don't know what it is, but I do know, you know, pretty much what the solution is, and that is realizing that you're valuable to Jesus and that there's a life after this life and that we're all here in this life for a purpose. Mm. Does all that make sense? Yeah. I, I know what I mean, but I don't know how to communicate yeah, you're it. Yeah, you're making perfect sense. The prayer of serenity, doesn't that come out of AA? Mm -hmm. And so that's something that even I've 
tried to adopt in my own life is, um, and for those that know, I mean, it's basically, you can, you'll know it better than I would, but it's like, give me the peace to accept what I cannot control, the courage to, or give me the peace to accept what I cannot change, the courage to change what I can. The wisdom to the know, wisdom know the difference between the two and not my will be done, but yours. You yeah. know, it's just a prayer of surrender, basically. And um, the AA, man, like, I, 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 is there, are there AA meetings around here? Or are they there all? Are. Okay. Because I have honestly thought about trying to go to an AA meeting once a month myself. Like, I've gone to, um, you know, we have overcomers here in our building, and I've, I've gone there once, and I know there's a lot of other ministries, but I've, I've, I would love to. I think everybody, I agree with your statement. You said everybody could benefit from it, and I 100% agree. And what I love about those environments, and I wish it's something that, and it's something we try to duplicate in within our church community, Um I love the honesty and the vulnerability. There's something powerful about just being able to have a place where you can take off your mask mm-hmm. and know that, hey, everybody in there is admitting, like, look, I know you're jacked up and I'm jacked up too, so let's just be honest about it. Let's get it out there in the open and like, okay, now let's like move forward together. Like, There's something really freeing about that and powerful. And I think like what happens is what shame causes us to do, and we see this in the biblical narrative, is it causes us to hide. You know, you think right. about Adam and Eve, whenever they eat, they experience shame, and they start, we know that because they start covering themselves with fig leaves. And I think all of us, to some extent, try to cover ourselves with fig leaves. For a lot of us, it's our career. Oh, you yeah. know, it's our reputation out in public. It's, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and, and, man, like, We've I got think, these wounds, and we put these bandages over them, you know. That's it, man. And, uh and you've got to, what I love again about that narrative, again, whether you're a, a, a Christian or not, it's just a great narrative and there's great truths from this. Even guys like Jordan Peterson, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, himself claims that there's a lot of truth in the Bible and just things that if you apply, it's wise. But God pursues them, and what does he do? He calls them out. He calls them out hiding, you know. And I think like that's it's, it's an absolute essential first step. Uh, which AA would say, right? I mean, right. like it's it's in one of those of like you got to come to a place you're like, all right, I recognize, like here's this is the truth, here I am, right? You know, um, do you? First, you have to recognize there's a problem. You know, that's the first step. Yeah. And the second step is I can't fix this, but maybe somebody else can. You know, and the third step is where you surrender to God and say, hey, yeah, help me. Yeah, you've got to start with there's a problem, and I think. The, one of the problems with our culture right now is we really think the greatest problem in the world is out there. Mm-hmm. And the greatest problem is in here it, for me and you, you know what I'm saying? Like, and we've got to start with, Hey, there's something in me that's still kind of gnarly and not exactly right. And I want to confess that. And I can't manage it on my own, which is why I'm confessing it to God and to someone else. When you started the, the, the jail ministry, um, was it shortly after that you got the vision for the Agape House? It was. I, I look back, and in the last rehab I was in, I think God was preparing me then because I would sit in that. It was a secular rehab. But I would sit in there, and I would think, you know, if I was running this, I would do this mm-hmm. instead of that. And I think he was kind of preparing me then. Um, and then I came home, and I was doing the jail ministry, and I would meet people. You know, I would go to jail and want to do right when I got out. But my family had heard that so many times, they couldn't believe me. They couldn't Mm -hmm. trust me. And so I would have nowhere to go when I got out, but back to another, maybe a friend that was in an addict's house or or some place like that. And if you hang out there, you get high. Mm -hmm. 
you know, even if you don't want to. You know, if you hang out at a barbershop, you get a haircut. And so I would end up using again, and that would add to that guilt and the shame and all that that I carried with me all the time. But I would Gosh, see yeah. girls that were just like me, going to go home with either no safe place to go, you know, or back home to their whole family were addicts. You know, and, and I think we, so the ladies that were going in there with me, I said, we need a place for them to go to, to get clean, you know, to get back on their feet and get a job because they can't because they're going where the drugs are. So they can't go get a job because they can't stay clean long enough, you know, so they can start taking care of themselves. And that was how the idea started. Mm. And we thought, well, maybe a house with four or five people, you know, that's <laughs> all we'd ever need, you know, four or five at a time. And we met a lot of resistance because at that time there wasn't anything like that around here, except for wow. like a rehab, you know. And yeah. I was like, no, not a rehab, someplace just where they can recover their life, but not necessarily a rehab, their whole life, you know. And uh, people would say, well, you're crazy. You can't put a bunch of felons in the same house. Or you can't <laughs> this or that. But we could see it. I could see it. And I would tell people, and then uh, some of the people I told were like, oh, yeah, you know, and, and just a lot of people came together, and we started working towards that. And we opened that first house in April of 2005. Who was funding that? Um, were there churches? My family did a lot of it. Mm. <laughs> I can remember taking up a collection of my family to, to file our 501c3. You know, wow. and, and my brother-in-law was like, I got a hundred bucks and this person and that person. Wow. And then um, there were some, we had started having the overcomers meetings in the church at that time. And uh, my church gave some money towards it and they did some remodeling on the house. They came, I remember uh, doing some rewiring and different people. Was it the house in Oak Grove? No, that was, our first house was East of Paragold. It was so ghetto, you know, but people worked really hard, and it looked nice when we opened up. Um, you did have to wear rubber-soled shoes to cook in the kitchen, or you would get electrocuted. Uh, <laughs> Are you serious? Which serious. And then that was one of my – I remember praying oh, God to help, awesome. help me. One to, last thing before you come to our house. You need to know this. Bring you, shoes. Yeah, you might I give my friend Shelly yeah. Taverna Browning a hard time because she uh, – heard that she had to have shoes to come in. She heard that was a requirement, and she was coming in, and she didn't own shoes. She would still go barefoot to this day all the time if she could. Um, so she brought two different flip-flops in. They weren't even the same size. But somebody had told her, because they knew you had to wear shoes to cook or you'd get electrocuted, told her to bring shoes. I mean, it was ghetto, but it worked. <laughs> and she's still clean to this day. You know, a lot of people wow. found recovery there. But she's like, I knew I had to bring shoes. And she had two different flip-flops, not even the same wow. size. Those were her shoes. But <laughs> in the end, the house in Oak Grove, we, found, we started looking for something. We found it. The community was really behind us at this point. And we bought that house and paid it off in less than a year. Really? Was that through just donations? From donations. It? And there were no big donations. It was, I mean, like probably, I want to say $20 at a time. But Jeez. some of them were more than that. Like a yeah. church would have us out and we'd talk about what we were doing. You were just and going around and telling the vision. And, and, um, yeah, and some family members of their, their people had come through. And just, I don't even know where it all came from. We... I felt like fundraise was my middle name at that time. Sure, but um, been there. We paid it off. Yeah. <laughs> we paid it off in a year, and we're still using that house. Uh, it needs a lot of repair. It's been it had a lot of repairs, but it needs some repairs now that it can't have with people living in it. But we can't shut it down. 
So that's where I dream to build the new place is. I want to build a, uh, be able to build a new place, give people something nice to come into with, uh, with it just, I'm excited about that. That's our next Do you know step. what the cost is on that building? Yeah, that a little over a million dollars. Oh, that's nothing. That's a drop in the bucket in the grand right. scheme of things, right? To God, right? it is, yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, You'll I think raise that no problem. We're, we're working hard on it. We've got, the land's paid off, and it was paid off in six months, and so now that's our next step. You know, I'm all about one step at a time, you know, how do you eat an elephant one by right. time? Just, but that first house, you know, I look back with, we make jokes about the getting shocked in the kitchen, but we have a lot of fond memories. You know, our first ever graduate and I are still in contact, and she's clean and doing good. And it just, it took us a year and a half to get a first graduate, but we did, you know, and uh, some of those people that fell off then are now clean and, and working in ministries of their own. Um, it was a good starting place. Is there anyone in particular that comes to your mind? And you, I know you've got probably hundreds of stories, but anyone, any story that comes to your mind particularly that that you go back to to be like, that's why I do what we do? Well, you know, Brooke that works with you, yeah. of course. And uh, tell I don't know if you know Telly. She wouldn't mind me I using her Telly. name. Yeah, she's a part of our church. She, um, the same police officer that would ask me, Sonny, what are you doing when I started? I'm hearing uh-huh. your name everywhere. Uh-huh. He showed up at the, at the, when the Agape House first started, I still had my daytime job, and then I would leave my job at two and go out there. It was not a paid position for over three years, you know, so I was, uh, I was still never home, but uh-huh. uh, he showed up there one night, and he said, I've got this girl in my car. She reminds me of how you used to be, and I told her, I got, I can either take you to jail or or bring you to this girl that reminds me of you. And uh, it was Telly. You know, mm. she was one of our, in that first, uh, second graduating class, Telly was in it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then she, you know, she had some pitfalls and get mm-hmm. back up, but she kept getting back up. And now she's a peer counselor, yes. you know, and, and working with addicts and uh, just doing great, you know, and uh, touching a lot of lives. Yeah. So her mind, you know, she stands out to me. Um, there are a lot of people that stand out to me, and we have so many people coming in, and I jokingly say, I'm not going to get to know them until they've been here a month, and I see that they're going to stay. But <laughs> I look I back the same at, way. <laughs> I look back at different ones, and there's some I can remember every detail of the day they came in. Uh, like I'm going over the rules with somebody maybe, and uh, they start arguing with me about the rules, and then mm. they end up serving on our board you know, six years later or something. So that, it gives me hope, you know, for anybody. um, Is that how you keep from getting cynical? Because, I mean, obviously for every one of those stories, I'm guessing you have three or four of the other stories. I'm pretty cynical. Yeah. Yeah, I just sometimes, we, I have a great group of people I work with out there. I've got Uh two wonderful assistant directors. I've got great house moms and house dads, and we've got a development director. We've grown from me Uh and my family to... Uh, and the people I was in church with, to so many people that support the Agape House with their time. We've got great teachers volunteering, all kinds of stuff. And when I'm having one of those days, it seems like I'll run into somebody, like I'll run into Brooke or run into somebody, and and it encourages me. Yeah. you know, Or somebody will hit me up in Messenger and say, I just wanted to tell you, yes. I just had my baby, and that wouldn't have been possible, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. And I think, okay, right. But even I have to say this too, because you know, we the you know, the 
I say little boy because I'm 59 now, and and when they're in their 20s, they're young. Mm -hmm. I call them kids. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the little boy Christian that was found in the house in Truman, he was one of our guys last summer, Mm -hmm. and we just couldn't help him. He had mental illness, and my assistant director flew all over the country trying to get him. We we were trying to take him to a dual diagnosis center in Florida. We got him to the airport, and they wouldn't let him fly alone. So we had to raise the money for two tickets, and she flew down there with him, and then she couldn't fly back. It was like she ended up in Washington and everywhere trying to get home with the airports, but she finally made it back, and they kept him about two weeks. And, you know, I just I hate to harp on secular programs that you're only as sick as your insurance, but that upsets me so much. Um, yeah, because we're not in this for the money, you know. You right. can't you can't go into this for money because you'll be broke. Uh, <laughs> and for those who don't know what you're talking about, by the way, it's these insurance and, and you know we've we've if you start a a uh, a rehab that's going to be state funded, obviously you got to follow all these you know basically insurance controls how long someone's treatment is yeah. and what their treatment plan looks like. And so what you're talking about for those that don't know is somebody really needs six months of treatment and insurance says we'll give them six weeks or two weeks or two weeks like or in this kid's days, case yeah you know right and he uh i believe he's with the lord because i i've seen him you know i'm at times you know and then he just couldn't he was so tormented you know and he just it was just a hard thing to watch and he he, he kept trying he went to several different programs and you know he, i believe his struggles over now you know i don't mm. even know what happened mm. and uh his family's been on the news talking about how there wasn't a lot of help for mental illness at that time. Um, it's a real issue. And th- when that happens over and over and over again, you can get discouraged. You for know, sure. I, I had a little girl, I say little girl, she was in her 30s, you know, I'm, I'm so old, I think everybody's <laughs> little kids and they're grown adults, but I'm like, please come back in the agape house. I'm giving this girl a ride somewhere at midnight and I said, just let me turn right here and you come back. She said, I will. You know, uh, she said, I will, just not right now. i got to do this, this, and this. And uh, she gets out of the car when I take her where I'm taking her to, and she, she didn't say it quite like this. I'll say the rated G version. Sure. She's like, uh, I love you, Sonny Curtis, and I'm going to get my crap together, I promise. I'll call you. Mm-hmm. And she didn't because she died of a drug overdose about two weeks later. Yeah. And, you know, it it was just tragic. And that's people forget that addiction is life and death. And it's a miracle I made it out because I feel like I, you know, I wanted to to be very successful at whatever I did. And, and so I was a very successful drug addict. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I want to be successful on the other end and telling people there's a way out. You just got to keep trying. If this doesn't work, get back up and try again. Mm-hmm. You know, and somebody told me the other day, well, I, well, I can stay clean for about six months. I said, let's shoot for seven this time, mm-hmm. you know. And if you fall at seven, then we'll get back up and try for seven again. But, like, you know, one of these times you're going to get up. And I said, the last shot of dope I did, I did not think was my last shot of dope. I was sitting in a motel room in Little Rock with the police knocking on the doors, and I was not going to throw it away. I was going to do it. Wow. And then through a chain of events, I ended up coming home that night. Wow. And getting to stay home. You know, my family thought I had been clean since I left town in November. Or they wouldn't have let me come home, but they let me come home. What an image of an uh, addict, man, of like you're locked into, you've locked yourself into a room with drugs as the police are on the outside trying to get you out of there. And it's like, I know I'm going down, but I'm going down. Going like, down hey, high. That's exactly right. I'm going right. down high. Wow. Yeah. What, 
what would you say to first off to the um to the addict that might be listening to this? Nobody yeah. else maybe even knows. They're functioning right now. Right. They're what still fun- still functioning. Yeah. Or semi-functioning. Yeah, or you semi-function. think nobody else knows, right. but really a lot more people know than you realize. But, sure. Um, yep. That's very true. I would say there's hope. You know, there there is hope, especially when you when you are at your most hopeless point. Like people say, when you're at the bottom, the only thing left is up. Mm-hmm. And there are people out there uh, willing to help anybody that's willing to get clean. Yeah. Uh, I like to say I don't want to work harder for your recovery than you do. And I tell people that sometimes. Yes. I expect that's a to good see word. something out of them. That's a great um, word. I'm too old and tired to to put more into it than they're willing to put into it. But there are multiple, multiple, multiple people, and there. Are, when I came home, there weren't any Christian recovery meetings, and there, every. And I was thankful for AA and NA. You know, they didn't let me talk about Jesus like I wanted to because mm-hmm. I knew that was. But, but they still helped me. They understood me mm-hmm. because they were addicts and alcoholics too. Uh, but now with with uh, overcomers and celebrate recovery. You got people that understand you, but also know more about the solution. You know, that's uh, not trying to knock AA and NA because those are great organizations sure. that help yeah. a lot of people too. Um, but now there's so much help. You can find a Christian recovery support meeting almost every day anywhere in Paragold, pretty much. You know, y'all have overcomers mm-hmm. here on Monday nights and South Tuesday Side nights. Does, there's Next yeah. Step. There's yeah, Friday night at Southside. Seventh uh, and Mullet or something. Westview, uh, Westview has a Wednesday night celebrate recovery. Seventh and Mueller has a Thursday night. There's yeah. a meeting every night, and the people at those meetings don't want to just see you at that meeting. If you say, "Look, I need help," you know they're going to help you get into a program somewhere. And if you call someplace and they're full, call back the next day. You know, and call back the next day. And then by the time you called me that fourth or fifth day, I'm gonna try if, the, if I don't make the fire marshal too mad to find a spot to stick you in you know because mm-hmm. I see that you want it um just don't give up and know that there's hope what would you say to the fam the family member who you know whether it's a spouse or a parent I guess it all depends on what where you're at in the in the mix what kind of family you are because I know addicts affect each person's family differently yeah um but just generally speaking to a loved one, or maybe even a friend of someone who they know is an addiction and they continue to just stay on that path. And right now it doesn't look like maybe there's any hope they're going to get out of it. Maybe they're where you were. Yeah. What does, what, how do, how do we love, how do we love that person who maybe is at the place where you're like, Hey, they're wanting me to work harder for their addiction. Then they or for the recovery, then they want to work for it. How do we love that person who's maybe still in that place? Sometimes that love comes from a distance. Mm. I mean, it has to because you've got to protect yourself. Um, you know, my parents had to protect my children from me because I was crazy, you know. Mm. Um, but I know they never quit praying for me. And I feel like those times when I was suicidal and then felt like I was too chicken to kill myself, it wasn't that. It was them standing in the gap for me and praying for me when I couldn't pray for myself. So you don't ever quit praying and you don't ever give up hope, but sometimes you've got to separate yourself for your own sanity for a period of time. And uh, I've been on both sides of it. You know, uh, I've got a daughter that's got over 10 months sober now, but I've uh, had to call an ambulance because she was barely breathing before, you know. And uh, I think I've asked my mother, how did you live through that? And she said, "Uh, I just tried to keep your kids safe, you know, and... 
pray for you to get some sense about yourself, you know. Um, and so mm. I've been on both sides of it. I don't know what's harder. I don't know what's harder to be the addict or to love the addict. Mm. I've got a son in prison right now for the third time. And, you know, it's what I've raised him. I feel bad because I feel like I've raised him to do those things. You know, and he'll say, well, Mom, you and Dad quit when y'all got ready. No, we were ready for years before we could quit. You know, when he was first getting sucked into it, I try to tell him, don't know what you're stepping into. You're not going to be able to just step out. There's a line that once you cross it, you can't come just walk back across it. And you, who knows where that line is for you? Uh, so it's hard, but I think as long as we can hang on to hope, there, as long as they're breathing, there's hope. And just keep trying to help. Don't enable. And that's a fine line, too, between yes. enabling and helping. You know, we It's not always to, real clear, is it, on where that... We had to tell my son this time he couldn't parole back out to our house. Uh, and so he said in prison already made parole with no place to go. So I know what... I, and I've been on both sides of it, and, I, and my kids know that I'm kind of an open book, which means their lives are kind of open books, too. But mm-hmm. they're both very open about their struggle, too. And uh, my daughter now is reaching people with her sobriety. She's made, awesome. I don't understand TikTok and stuff, but she's made <laughs> some TikTok videos showing how it was and how it is for her now. And people are reaching out to her. Awesome. And she's getting to invite them to meetings. And that's how it works. The recovery community, and it's not just people in recovery. You know, it takes people. One of my assistant directors has never even had a drink of alcohol. Praise God. Mm-hmm. And she's never needed to, and she doesn't want to. Um but she just loves people, you know, and, and she can reach the addict because they're like, she loves me, and she doesn't even have any reason mm-hmm. to. She shows the love of God probably a whole lot better than I do. <laughs> um, but then it's just the recovery community, especially in our area right now, is it's amazing because it's made up of recovering people and then people that love people. Mm. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've noticed that or not, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's just... Oh, it's, uh, it's grown tremendously since when you first started one. It's like yeah. a revival yeah. of recovery and, and you know, with Jesus at the center. And I don't mm-hmm. want to get all preachy or anything, but what I would tell a family member, you know, sometimes you have to love from a distance, but don't quit loving and don't give up hope. But what it takes for that addict sometimes is to have no other options. But help, and then they'll t- then they'll want to the help. Yeah. You know, for me, I was facing forty years in prison, and they say that's not a deterrent, but it sure was. And my physical health was really bad. Um, just a lot of things like that, I think, contributed. And then I got that Bible and started reading it. I didn't have anything else to do in that jail cell because I was isolated with uh, not a TV or anything. And the Gideon that prayed with me, he told me he said. I just suggest you start in the chap in the book of John, and that's where I was reading. And part of it didn't make sense, and mm-hmm. part of it did, but I just kept reading. And then I felt like God started speaking to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I told him, if you get me out of this jail, I won't ever do drugs again. And I felt like, I can't say God said, but it felt like it said, yeah, you will, but I'm going to get you out anyway. And I got out mm-hmm. by a miracle. I got a medical OR, which didn't even happen back then. But I think I was so sick, they thought I was going to die in their jail, and they didn't want me there. Mm-hmm. And they released me. Uh, I still had to court battles for two years in two different states. but uh, And I relapsed because I didn't have anywhere to go but back to a dope house, and I relapsed. And then I ended up in that re- – I has through all that, I escaped from the 
police station and a lot of other crazy stuff happened. <laughs> but I got sentenced to a year in the county jail or long-term rehab, and I ended up in that long-term rehab that wasn't Christian, mm-hmm. but they would let us go to church. And that's where I think God started working in me. And then I relapsed from that. I ran off with the assistant director and went on a cocaine binge. But that's where I was sitting in that motel room trying to do dope with the cops knocking on the doors trying to find us, you know. It was crazy. But it all came about. All things work together to good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And and you just don't give up and you hang on to that hope. And you get on the side road and so it takes you a little longer to get back around yeah. and get back on that path. But keep heading back towards that path. Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, just what I, this is going to sound kind of uh, maybe crude, but I've got a pastor friend that lives in Texas now. And he always just says, you know, the goal is to at least suck forward. <laughs> and so he was like, we all have a little bit of suck in us, you know, like a little bit of whatever crap you're kind of using the G-rated version while they go of like, but like if you'll keep doing that forward, you know, right. maybe a better or nicer way of saying it is if you'll just keep stumbling forward. Like, Fall down and get back up and you're still ahead of the devil it. if you keep moving in. And it's not where you're at, it's which direction you're moving in. Yeah, and I think it really does go back to, and, and this is certainly backed up again through like a biblical narrative, but I think through AA, through anybody who's been there, like the way up is down. And the fact that you've got, it, it's you've got to come to a place of brokenness, you've got to come to a place where you're willing to admit I'm the biggest problem. Right. It, yeah, like I've got major issues and I can't fix it. And I think like that's, you know, um, that's very hard because our pride tries to keep us from from doing that. It's that whole fig leaf thing, right? So, well, there's so much more that we could talk about. For the sake of time, I'm going to move us into some rapid fire questions. Are okay. you ready for that? I'll try. All right. So let's see here. I'm going to pull these up. Um, number one. What is it, the last show or movie you watched or the last book that you read? The last movie, uh, what was the name of that? It was big. It was about child. Uh, oh, yeah. What was that called? Oh, uh, that's Jim Caviezel in it. Yes. It was an excellent movie. I wouldn't blame I've not seen it, but I know what you're talking about. I've heard great you things about it. You need to see it. I've heard it, it's pretty it powerful. Very eye-opening. Um, yeah. I can't think of what it was, but that's the last movie I saw. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite band? Favorite band? Right now, uh, We the Kingdom. Yeah. And I still like Journey, too, from the 80s. Oh, what, what Journey song the Journey? Journey and We the Kingdom. I love them. I mean, loving, touching, squeezing. Um, Faithfully, is that one of theirs? Yeah. Uh, they have a lot of good songs. Yeah. And then We the Kingdom. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with them. They're familiar. recovering people, too. I didn't know you that. Know? Yeah. I didn't know that part and, of the show. Uh, they they do like uh, I think big CR concerts and stuff too. Very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah and we could get them to Paragol. That would be great. You can do it. Yeah, for uh, the grand opening of the new building. Oh wow, that's a good idea. Bring them in. Yeah, you can announce them when we get them there. Okay. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to it. It's, <laughs> rec- it's recorded. Yep, it's recorded. Uh, yeah. Maybe a big fundraiser. Right. That's oh, a, yeah. Yeah. Hey, that that's a great idea. Hey, we're we're gonna make it happen right here, right now. Um, all right, this is a really hard question. What would your last meal consist of? Your very last meal. You just have one meal you can eat. I like if I'm going to be executed yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, like you're going to be executed. Like you're, what's the, think about appetizers, main dish, dessert, drinks. Like what are you going to have? It's your last one. You don't got to worry about health, anything like that. 
Oh, I don't even know. You know, it, it's a hard question. It's isn't it? sad, but I, my drink would be a diet coke. That's nothing wrong with that. That's my favorite okay. drink. So you're gonna have a diet um, coke. What, what about an appetizer? Uh, hmm. Maybe something with jalapenos in it, like jalapeno poppers. Yeah, maybe, but not real hot ones. Just okay. Like but like a little cream cheese, yeah. the bacon wrapped around it. Would yeah, that sound good? Like Maybe that. a little so bit of barbecue good. rub on it or something. Yeah, and then I would have such indigestion and heartburn, no I problem. wouldn't even care if they cut my head off. That's right. <laughs> so that's great. So that's your that's your appetizer. What are you doing for a main dish? Steak, ribeye, sir. I mean, sirloin, uh, probably the fatty ribeye. Good fatty ribeye. Good fatty ribeye. Yeah, what are you doing for your sides? Nobody's ever asked me things like this before. Well, I, there's a lot of first on this show for people. <laughs> Only here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know. Baked potato, mashed potato? You know, when I'm sick, I always want macaroni and cheese. Macaroni Isn't that and crazy? cheese? I can be sick with the stomach flu. And want no way. And cheese. Look, I didn't get this big just sitting around. I eat a lot. I, I wish sometimes <laughs> I'd be too sick to eat, you know? <laughs> okay, so we'll steak, some really good macaroni and cheese, Diet Coke. What about dessert? Mmm. I'm not so much a sweet person. Maybe chicken and dumplings. Oh, hey, <laughs> I like that. That's I like awesome. It. Bring it on. Okay. Best answer. Very good. What is on your nightstand right now? Um, my daughter's got me into this TikTok challenge. And again, I don't really understand it. She has to screenshot it and send it to me because I can't figure out how to find it. The Jesus challenge. And so it is... Um, Large print King James Bible, and I keep thinking, well, I'm going to get a different version, but that's the big print that I can see without a lot of light. Okay. So I'm doing this uh, September Jesus Challenge TikTok. I'm doing a TikTok challenge, and that's what's on my nightstand. Then, and I've got a devotional there. And uh, you might be the only person in the United States that are uh, that is doing a TikTok challenge that involves the King James, a Bible. giant print King James. No, Bible. I'm not the only one doing it There's, with the King James. There, I don't know. That's I'm what I'm saying. King that's James the unique part. Large, I think TikTok. Yeah, it's large print. I don't put those two together. It's TikTok <laughs> and large print King James. It's called the Jesus Challenge. It's, I like it. It's all young people and me, I guess. <laughs> Everybody's young to you is what you say. Apparently. They're probably 45 and you're talking about how they're young. I'm the oldest person in this room right now. That Every, is true. And I guess that beats the alternative for sure. You know, maybe. I don't know. Um, but Also the coolest person in the room, which isn't saying much. Uh, <laughs> definitely the most street smarts. That's for sure. Um, give us a snapshot of just an ordinary moment in your daily life that, that brings you great joy. Or just an ordinary moment kind of in your week that brings you a lot of joy. Um grandchildren mm. you know i have ten grandchildren they're amazing um when they hug you you know and they're like i love you mimi or you know my grandchildren are getting older and they can send me they have i have snapchat too which i also don't understand Man. but they can call me on that and i can answer you know and see them um you know and it'll because i'll just be going along and then I'll, it'll be the little ring and I'll realize it's one of my grandchildren and that does bring me joy because I think oh you know that's really cool and they want to call their grandma you know instead yeah. of usually they want something but well, you're getting on their <laughs> you're getting on their level too that helps I'm uh, trying they, what, they try <laughs> last question what is one thing you are deeply grateful for right now uh well my salvation I mean, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox, but without it, I wouldn't have anything else. The love of Jesus, that he loved me, and I'm still unlovable. You know, I mess up so much every day, but he loved me at my most unlovable. And I got pretty evil and pretty dark, 
mm-hmm. you know, for some years. And uh, when I felt like I was unlovable, I was still loved. I'm just grateful for Jesus. Awesome. I can't wait to meet him when I get there. Yeah. And then the other people that are there, I'm ready to see them too. One day, one day soon, sister. Oh. Well, thank you so much for making space to be here. Um, it's always so good to spend time with you. And thank you so much for, um, as I said earlier, your perseverance. Uh, this is such a needed ministry that you provided, and um, I can't think of anybody better to be doing it. So grateful for you. I'm excited to see the new facility, and I really look forward to being the announcer or whatever it is that you told me I was going right. to be able to do. Yeah. Something. we got to so. get word out to We the Kingdom that they're coming. They yeah, we should let them know. know. They need Maybe Zach Williams, too. That would be great. Clear we'll, their schedule. We'll just put that on Facebook. They'll see it. Let's yeah. do it. Oh, for let's, sure. Let's yeah. do it. They follow us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sonny. Thank y'all for letting me come. And Sonny has left the building. I love that line where she said, I don't want to work harder for your recovery than you do. Um, it is such a fine line between knowing when you're helping someone or when you're enabling someone. Yeah. And for me, like, that was really helpful. Yeah, almost like, impossible to know, but that's a good indicator. Yeah, like am I spending more time, energy, resources, trying to help you get out of your addiction than you are? Yeah. And so um, I love spending time with Sunny. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, I believe this is true. She's the only grandparent in the room and the only one on TikTok and a Snapchat. <laughs> she is definitely evolving better than we are. Yeah, much better. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, probably why she's been so successful at oh. what she's been doing. So, Sunny, thank you so much for taking time to come on to share your story. I love your vulnerability. I love your passion. Uh, love the work you're doing. And, hey, if you're still listening, really appreciate you tuning in. Um, if you've not done so, please go and check us out on our different social media platforms. We're on Instagram and Facebook primarily. Um, and whatever you're listening to this on, whatever platform it might be, whether it's uh, Apple or Spotify, please give us a five-star rating, and that will help people to uh, uh, learn more about us and uh, to discover our podcasts uh, more quickly. And so, as always, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.